online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. I use British produce and someone told me, oh, are you doing fusion food? I said, no, I'm just using the produce of the land in which I'm cooking. I think this is the first time in my lifetime when many use regard it as cool to be able to cook. We had taken a bag of potatoes and I took out the potatoes and I asked these children, five-year-olds, that, you know, where did the potatoes come from? It was my son who said Tesco's. And I realized that, you know, I had failed. I had also failed. Well, it's a real pleasure to finally, unfortunately not see in person, but the amazing guy saying Watson. It's, you know, the stories that you hear about you all the time. And I think that it's just so inspirational uh, around the world. In fact, you know, we need farmers like you who actually understand and respect the soil. For those who I'm sure there are not that many who don't know who Guy is, he is Riverford and that's the only way to describe him. The iconic person who started from a wheelbarrow to doing vegetable box deliveries for 50,000 people. It's incredible that he could just take something, a simple idea, and take it to that. And man before his time. Is that how you see yourself, a man before the times in some ways? Um, yeah, I think uh, I probably was. I, I, I was definitely not the first person to deliver veg boxes in the UK. I think we were about the third. But yeah, I've, I've always enjoyed figuring out things for myself rather than kind of following others. And also, I think the, the, the ethos uh, is, is commendable and it's really inspirational when you look at things right now, you know, and what we've all been through. And that, you know, from my own family, you know, when we had never seen the mountain from the village, but we always heard that you could see the mountain, but because of pollution, it was blocked. And suddenly, because of the lack of traffic uh, and, and, you know, of course, diesel trucks going down, you could see the mountains. It's in some ways, uh, we are reclaiming the earth. It's something that uh, you've done so brilliantly. I just want to know, what is it that, the one thing that drives you, uh, what is the one philosophy that leads you? I, I guess trying to farm and produce food in a way which is in harmony with, you know, the nature, nature which I kind of revere and, and love. Uh, so trying to farm in a way that doesn't, damage that is what motivates me so you know when I you know I mean so much of farming is even organic farming is a violent act every time you turn the soil over with the plow it is immensely destructive so so just trying to keep that to a minimum and, and really try and farm in a way which is which borrows and learns uh, from nature I guess that's what's inspired me um, more and more over the years. So, I mean, I still, you know, I, I do get my inspiration from nature. And at this time of year in Devon, uh, you know, the hedgerows and so on are just astounding. And I want to farm in a way that complements that, you know, that has all that variety and, and you know, and supports the insect life and the soil life and the, the birds. And, and, and um, you know, so I've been out picking artichokes um, this morning since, uh, since very early. And, and the fields are just teeming with wildlife and and that's how i want to live and and farm and i, I just could never envisage uh using pesticides you know as i did in my youth but I, you know i just couldn't couldn't go back there we've all seen this that iconic clip of yours that i think has been viewed by millions uh, on pesticides and i think it's really you know and i i know this from an indian point of view my father is a farmer in india mm. 
the use of pesticides, uh, fertilizers, uh, genetically modified seeds is finishing the farming industry in my country and this whole having large farms and making this whole thing very commercial. I know you have a very strong position on this. I'm just afraid. You don't know. I don't know how we can stop this. It's like a juggernaut, which is just plying over our lands and flattening everything in its place. I mean, it's, you stand out as this kind of powerful voice for us all. Well, I, it is very difficult to stop it. I mean, all the pressures that we're under as farmers are, are towards scale and, and uniformity and reducing costs and, you know, and producing particularly reducing labor and the, the way to do that is to mechanize and if you want to mechanize you have to have uniform crops so that you can harvest them mechanically and if you want them to be uniform that all pushes you towards using excessive amounts of fertilizer and pesticides to be able to guarantee that uniformity and it pushes you towards using um, hybrid seeds and then perhaps even you know GM seeds. So yeah, you're right, all the pressures are in that direction and it is pretty depressing. I mean, on the other side of it, you know, we have a whole load of cooks, food citizens, I'll try not to call them consumers, though, who are, who want something different, you know, who do value nature and do want to see a vibrant countryside with people able to make uh, decent livings, you know, without resorting to the sort of um, agriculture which is destroying nature. So, there, you know, the commercial pressures and capitalism are all pushing us in one direction, a direction that I feel very opposed to, but kind of in a way, bizarrely, you know, because these are our customers. And if you believe in capitalism, it's all supposed to be about serving customer desires and needs. But, you know, somehow those customer desires are not being transferred through the food chain back into the, the sort of food production that we want to see. And I think the reason for that is that so much, you know, there's so much dishonesty in, in food, you know, about how it's produced. I think if most people saw an intensive pig or chicken farm or, you know, spent times on farms and saw the pesticides, you know, I think they would be absolutely appalled. But that's not the image that they're that they're sold, you know, they're sold of something, well, you know, much more wholesome. More beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I, I, I remember going into reception, you know, show and tell, where I'd taken a bag of potatoes and I took out the potatoes and I asked these children, five-year-olds, that, you know, where did the potatoes come from? It was my son who said Tesco's. And I realized <laughs> that, you know, I had failed. I had also failed. It's a central London, you know, primary school. But everybody was shocked that it was growing, something had grown under the ground. And that they were eating it and i just i don't know what has happened you know this you know we need to tell these stories and we need to tell them it's so evocative and so beautiful and the stuff that you do is so inspirational and i just don't know how we get these stories out because you know many well, children have no idea i think there are encouraging signs i mean there are a lot of things moving in the wrong direction of seeing more and more processed food and having less and less idea where it came from but I think this is the first time in my lifetime when many youths regard it as cool to be able to cook, you know, and, yes. and I do th I think that is something, okay, it may be largely a middle class phenomenon, but I think it is broadening. And, and I do think that that's very encouraging. And, and if you are a cook, you don't have to cook for very long before you start developing an interest in, in, in where this food comes from and how it's produced. And, and that is the basis for so much of our culture. So, you know, I, I do think a society where food production is divorced from, you know, eating is, is unlikely to have a sort of healthy culture. I, you know, food eating is, you know, wherever you go in the world is an integral part of our culture. And if we reduce that just to 
you know, how we acquire the necessary nutrients, you know, then, then well, we won't, you know, we'll, we'll have a very poor culture and, and probably have very poor health as well. And, and, and have a very poor environment because it's only by being in contact with your environment that you sort of start feeling the love and desire to preserve it. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's, it's the same. I mean, I do a lot of work for the way that staff are treated in restaurants. And I think that this is all very similar, actually. We're all on the same side because, you know, you you know, be ethical about how you source ingredients, but also ethical about how you treat people, how you treat women, uh, you know, how you how you hire people and also about waste, which is a real issue in restaurants. I, I do think there is a growing appreciation that equality, fairness and respect is actually part of the environmental sustainability agenda and and that we, until we have some degree of fairness we will not look after our environment um, and I've been more and more debates I see that as being an integral part of it really we, we can't have this situation where a tiny minority of the world's population are consuming in an absolutely obscene way you know whilst you know the vast majority you know just don't have access to good food and 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 you know so that sort of leveling out a bit i think is absolutely integral to you know getting some sort of sustainability back into the way we live yeah the thing is that you know i i, I run an indian restaurant but i don't fly down any uh, of my vegetables and fruits from india at all i can't because i've seen what has been happening in the farms in india where people are growing for western market there's no trickle down effect farmers yeah. are committing suicide and it is terrible mm. i won't and i use british produce and someone told me ah oh, are you doing fusion food i said no i'm just using the produce of the land in which i'm cooking because this makes sense and you know i don't need out of season stuff i don't want to fly it down i don't want to have the carbon footprint on my menu and i think that you know it is important that you know you are of course you know a towering figure in farming but i also think that chefs more and more are actually understanding and respecting farmers more. And I think this is a great uh, connection, which may help all of us to, to get the message out. Well, I, I hope so. And I think you are right. There is more and more interest from chefs in, in how the food is produced. I do worry a little bit when quite a lot of that interest is around kind of proving how clever you are and that you're one step ahead of everyone else and you've got the latest you know, esoteric forage ingredient or something. So, uh, and, and, you know, I think we need to get back to actually celebrating, you know, a cabbage rather than yes. samphire forage from some marsh somewhere, though, you know, we do do the samphire as well. <laughs> but um, but you, you made this point about, uh, you know, the fact that organic food is seen as being very elite. And this, again, smacks so much of elitism uh, in the restaurant business because a lot of it, of course, you know, I didn't grow up in this country. So some of the stuff, like, I have no idea even what it is. Uh, I, like, never seen, I only learned much later a lot of the English produce because, you know, I didn't grow up here. But yeah. I think that, yes, there is this elitism and a price tag that comes with all the sustainability. I do think, I, I think that's just an absolutely hideous part of our class system that we do seem to use food as a way of proving how different we are. I mean, food is something that should bring people together. And I have run several restaurants myself and, and I always try and, you know, the thing with organic, you know, you, you're kind of, there's a price premium and, and you're already heading towards that sort of elitist thing. But we've always tried to do whatever we can to take the cost down and make sure that the food that we're serving is affordable to many. And I just love seeing, you know, those large groups 
in our restaurants, often spanning several generations, you know, sitting down and sharing a meal together that is affordable to everyone. I mean, you know, and it's about food should be about bringing people together and sharing, not proving how clever and elitist you are. I must say I was very stunned before this uh, interview. I, I googled and looked at the menu and when I saw the price of, of your set uh, lunch and brunch, I was really taken aback. Well, it is so affordable and it really surprised me. Well, thank you. And I'm, I'm, actually, I remember soon after we opened some very fashionable Londoners coming in and, and after eating, you know, with lots of other people, probably much less fashionable, and when they're coming up and saying, oh, this is really great, Guy. Why aren't there more people like me in here? Why aren't there? <laughs> it was kind of saying, why isn't it more expensive? And why isn't it? I don't want it to be. And actually, you know, really, I'd rather there weren't too many people like you. <laughs> you know, I, I love seeing big families enjoying themselves from, and, you know, when I hear, you know, when we get visits from people who, from more modest backgrounds who really appreciate it, it that's what really thrills me, yeah. You know, and the thing is that, you know, I, I often, you know, when I speak to people, there's criticism about the unhealthy food that, you know, people from deprived backgrounds, you know, uh, families, large families, you know, who eat, you know, really stodgy food. And this makes me very uncomfortable because the problem is that not everybody knows how to cook. And you're right that, you know, there's a change that people are learning how to cook. But when you are poor or you don't have, you have a large family, you've got limited resources. I always worry about the fact that, you know, fresh foods, fresh vegetables, uh, you know, just being able to enjoy, cut something. That is something that a lot of people are missing out on because they just get something ready-made. Uh, it's quick, it's fast, it's cheap. And it's not well, necessarily connecting them to the land. I mean, unfortunately, it is cheaper, isn't it? You can't, I mean, God knows how that processed food is produced so cheaply. Um, and, and, and it has relatively, in my 35 years of you know, doing veg boxes, you know, unfortunately, the vegetables have become a relatively more expensive part of our diet, which is such a shame when, you know, all the, well, all environmental advice is to eat a plant-based diet. And, uh, and we avoid processed food, and indeed all health advice is, is pretty much the same. So um, yet somehow, you know, market forces are, you know, pointing us towards eating, you know, really, really dreadful food on the whole. You know, and it is ridiculous in agriculture that public money, taxpayers' money is used to fund the production of food in a, such an environmentally damaging way with so little public access to the land and, and, you know, and then it ends up through the processing chain, you know, the vegetables end up being so expensive is, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a shame. I still think as a part of your diet, I think vegetables probably represent, I would say on average, two or 3% of people's expenditure. So, I mean, but it does seem to be when people talk about poverty, that we're always talking about food poverty when People probably spend three times as much on their rent, and I don't know why we don't talk about housing poverty, um, you know, a bit more, and 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 instead of expecting food always to be so cheap. Yes, and I think that that is the problem that you know it, the priority of what you know food is skewed in lots of ways, and political interests are, are, are I mean, and politicians are the worst people who should be deciding on these things. And I think that, you know, we should have, you know, people like you on committees trying to guide the, how the resources are spent, how food is, is, is available to people, because it is not the kinds of people who are making decisions about how food is distributed, the lobbying, absolutely appalling.
calling, the lobbying of, of politicians means that, you know, farmers, you know, don't necessarily and those who have a good heart and want to, you know, contribute to the community don't get, get their voice heard sometimes. Yeah. You get your voice heard because you <laughs> are fearless. You have no fear and you go for it. And I just love that. And also, I mean, I, I'm anyone who will, you know, who knows who you are, this giving away three quarters of your, uh, the shares of Riverford to your employees is just absolutely amazing. And it's such a strong signal to all of us, you know, who, who run organizations. I never call my, my restaurant a business, it's a social enterprise. I haven't had the courage to be able to do it. You inspire me so much. I hope one day I can be like you and, and open, let my employees become owners. It's just incredible. And have you seen a change in attitude of the employees? Co-owners, yeah. as we now call them. Um, yes. Yes. I, I don't, I'll just correct you there. I didn't give them three quarters. I, I sold it to them at, a very yes. much, at about a quarter of what I was told it was worth. And, you know, we've, we've done so well in the three years since then that they've been able to pay me off very comfortably. And what I didn't want to do is sell it at a price that would lumber the business with so much debt that it would be yeah. in jeopardy. So, and so since, yes, there has been, um, you know, since employee ownership, we, we have never done so well, actually. And, and part of that may be, I don't know what's going on in the food world and whatever, and home delivery of food, and obviously it has been a massive growth area. But, but I mean, I think even, even our quite dry and cynical finance director <laughs> concedes now <laughs> that part of the reason for our success is the employee ownership and the fact that people are so much more invested in the business that more decisions are being taken locally and fewer by management so that our overheads have reduced you know productivity has gone up quality has gone up um, you know with it, throughout the business the I, I think we're just getting so much more out of everyone and everyone's enjoying it so we're able to give more back so um, you know, we are doing very well. We're going to be paid a voluntary living wage from this autumn. Uh, we just announced this year's profit share, which was £3,200 for every full-time wow. um, co-owner, you know, which is tax-free on top of their wages. So, you know, they it, it is, yeah, I don't know, it just seems to be a win-win. And I guess what I wanted to do, I mean, I've, I've spent my whole life getting angry with politicians, and I, I suppose I'm sort of almost despaired particularly of the current lot and I so you know instead of just arguing with them all the time I've decided that I'll just try and live a good life and do my own thing and, and try and prove that you can behave and run a business differently and that it doesn't always the world doesn't have to be run along such cynical lines you know the idea that we're all motivated primarily by our own commercial financial well-being i.e. by greed really which is the kind of what we're all led to assume um, within our sort of capitalist economics. And I, I just think it's all built on a lie, I don't think. And, and since becoming employee-owned, I, I do think there's, on the whole, there is so much more to be gained from cooperation than there is from, from competition. And so that, that's not just with the co-owners, but I mean, working very closely with all our suppliers as well. I, th I think we have a very efficient supply chain, creating great vegetables that people can know with assurance where they're coming from, that they're being produced in the right way. And the whole thing is just so much more fun and, and so much less stressful. You know, everyone knows their bills are gonna be paid on time and we won't be ripping them off. Uh, and that, um, you know, that they have a secure 
future with us. So I don't know, it just seems, it is, it is three years now and I have to pinch myself sometimes. It has all just gone um, fantastically well and, and I'm immensely proud of, of, of what we've achieved and that, you know, we are demonstrating that there is another way of farming and another way of doing business. So now what next? Where will we see you next? What are you going to be doing next? <laughs> well, personally, I am, you know, I'm spending more time in the field. So I've been out in the fields this morning and I'll be out in them again this afternoon. And that's what I really enjoy doing. I'll, I'll continue to, I don't have very many day-to-day -day responsibilities at Riverford. We have a fantastic team who run the business. So my role is to encourage, prod, sometimes make trouble when I think we're ain't and I get a feeling that we're going in the wrong direction, I will um, make my voice heard. But mostly, I mean, that's pretty rare, actually. And normally when I, when I get unhappy about something and, and raise my voice, I find actually that someone else is also unhappy and is already uh, working on, you know, addressing it. So, uh, you know, as a business, I think we are putting a lot of effort into reducing our environmental footprint. And personally, I am spending more and more time in the fields trying to develop new ways of growing vegetables. We're experimenting with agroforestry, planting walnuts and hazelnuts, uh, trying to grow more perennial um, vegetables. And that's what I love doing. I, you know, I love being experimental in, in the way I farm. I'm very happy with that. Do you think, I mean, of course, led by the fact that after Brexit, there was this huge labor shortage and, you know, farmers talking about, you know, everything rotting on the fields. Hmm. I mean, maybe it's utopian, but I'm just hoping that this one year of difficulties and all the challenges that have come with it, that people may start looking at actually doing things differently. Or do you think that everything's going to go back to normal and there's going to be you know, huge numbers of Eastern Europeans shipped in, you know, pick everything well, was, and then go off. <laughs> I was most definitely a Remainer. But one of the things yeah. that I do, actually, I do think it's a really good thing that um, wages are going up and they're going up because there is less around and, and um, you know, people are having to pay more within the catering industry, within the building industry, within agriculture. And not only will they have to pay people more, they'll have to look after their staff better. And so, you know, Weatherspoons, I gather, can't get any staff. Well, is that any <laughs> well, great surprise? Well, too bad, how sad. <laughs> how sad, yeah. Um, you know, we, we have no problem recruiting, actually. I, was, I rang around yesterday and, and we have virtually no vacancies. Um, we're picking a lot of strawberries at the moment. They're ripening very quickly and needed to get some more people in. And because we have a reputation for being a fair, decent employer, actually, we've had no problem whatsoever recruiting, you know, really a quite short notice. Notice, uh, to fill those places so you know I think there will be difficult times ahead in terms of recruiting people but I think you know that it's important to make sure that you really look after people well and um, and pay them fairly and you know you'll be the first you know people that they look to for a, for a job and and you know the weather spoons of this world will not be um, you know they'll be the employer of last resort for most people I suspect and uh, unfortunately within the catering industry I'm sure this isn't true of you <laughs> but there are have been historically some pretty dreadful employment practices things like you know withholding tips and you know, pretty miserable wages anyway ridiculous you know working hours you know shifts which aren't paid for I'm sure you're well aware of what goes on yes. within the catering yeah 
manufacturing industry and uh, I have limited sympathy. I know that there are some good businesses who are struggling to recruit, uh, but I know I think some of the ones that are having most trouble are the ones that probably abuse their staff historically and I have limited sympathy. No, no, I, I agree with you completely. And, you know, there's a huge, especially in London, because there was a huge exodus after the December lockdown, you know, and many of these, you know, left London, but many of them were from Europe and have not come back. And I tell everybody, we deserve this. We, we didn't value them, we didn't pay them, we didn't respect them and honor them. And now yeah. this is the situation where we're in. And it yeah. is, you know, and, and same with agriculture. And, you know, those who are good, I mean, my restaurant, I've, I'm fully staffed. And I got back everybody who had been working with me in December, they came back. But it is really about the fact that, you know, we have just ground, and I'm surprised, and it's really unfortunate, I've had people coming into my restaurant who said, ah, oh, but you know, it's much cheaper in Southall and Wembley. And I just look at them and I say, you should eat there. Don't come into Covent Garden. Don't expect to pay. And then it's actually someone, you know, next table butted in and said, you know, she's paying them London living wages on top of that, all the, all the tips. The problem is, as well, it's on both sides. You know, we have allowed customers to drive the price down to the ground. And then we have crushed the people who work with us. And it's a, you know, it's really a difficult situation now. We need to find a way out of it. And I think, you know, what you've done in Riverford is really inspirational. We should all look at that because I think we can all learn from how you can be human, you can be successful, you can make a lot of money and yet be kind. Because the problem is this, I think this, the harvest of Thatcher is still there. We're still reaping that bitter harvest where people think that you've got to be successful, you've got to be brutal, you've got to be competitive, you've got to crush your neighbour, you've got to be harsh and workers should have no rights. Well, I do think you only have to look at you know, programmes on the TV like The Dragon's Den and, um, you know, uh, Lord Sugar, whatever it's called, The Apprentice. And, it, you know, they, they make out that, you know, business is all about making deals you know, and being hard and what, you know, business, most of business is about managing relationships. And, and uh, you know, there are people who get rich by making good deals. I mean, yeah, most of them are the ones who live in the city who caused all the pain of the 2008 financial crisis with all their bloody deals. But, you know, mo people who actually make things and provide services which are really of some real value you know, mostly business is about managing relationships, be that with your customers, suppliers, or, or colleagues, stroke staff. And, and you know, and I think anybody who doesn't respect that is not going to be successful very long. They might, you know, thrive in some sort of trading environment, but in terms of actually making something of lasting value, they're going to fail. So uh, before we end, I just wanted to ask you, you know, for all of us who look up to you uh, and see the transformation that you've made, a family farm that, you know, you changed everything and, you know, your legacy will live long after you because for the fact that you changed the ethos of how, you know, how you treat workers, but also how you treat the soil. What one advice would you give to people who are in the food business, you know, not necessarily farming, but to all of us? Well... I don't know, I suppose the one bit of advice I'd give on, uh, on what we eat, I think really has to be at this moment in time, eat less meat and less animal products, you know, and I'll add to that, eat less processed food and try and look to the long term. I suppose I think particularly the people who are wealthier, I, I think the responsibility is really with us to use our money wisely. You know, we are the ones who 
have the choices that you know many people don't have so many choices and we really need to use those choices sensibly to to change the world and yes paying a bit more money for, on your food and perhaps a bit less on a fancy car or a powerboat or international travel i would really urge that that's how the wealthy should be spending their money i i, I find it interesting actually having ending ending my life as a you know far richer than i ever could have envisaged i mean how can i use my wealth and enjoy my wealth you know um without you know, the negative consequences and and that often you know if you're going out for a meal you know um you know being prepared to pay more to buy ethically made goods um, to buy organic, you know, I think those are the sort of choices, you know, to invest in electric cars and so on. Those are the things that we, you know, those with money and choices uh, should be doing. The, the onus is on those with wealth, you know, to change the world and get us heading in the right direction and just to stop being so bloody selfish. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. On that lovely note, uh, I, I, I want to thank you and you're the first guest on my show and it's been such a privilege talking to you and I look forward to, to visiting your restaurant and uh, the food, just I wait to eat that. Thank you very, very much. Do, do. You'd be very welcome and let us know when you're coming. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.